Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, the only show that takes a look at the obstacles and opportunities open to small to mid-sized enterprises that manufacture here in America. Brought to you by All Metals and Forge Group, with your hosts, Tim Grady and Lou Wise. Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio. My name's Tim Grady. I'm here with my co-host, Lou Weiss. Lou, how are you doing today? Doing great. Doing great. Um, things uh, are just moving along. Uh, we have all kinds of exciting things happening today all over the country. Uh, we we may have a uh, – we don't talk politics, as everybody knows, but no, it's don't. hard not to talk politics today. So it is uh, let me just uh, – <laughs> it's not impossible. Um just to go back uh, and give a little postscript of last week's uh, show, we did have um, Drew Greenblatt, chairman of the National Alliance for Jobs and Innovation, and we had Rob McKenna, partner at Oric Harrington and Sutcliffe uh, Law Firm, who is the co-chair of his public policy group, and he's former Washington State Attorney General uh, from 2015 to 2013. And he's the president of the National Association of Attorneys, Attorneys General in 2011 to 12. Um, the purpose of uh, NAGI is uh, uh, cyber, uh, cyber security and cyber attacks and how companies are being attacked and they've had no recourse in, uh, from foreign countries and foreign companies. And um, Rob McKenna, who was the uh, attorney general, got a series of other attorney generals uh, around the country, and they put together this program where uh, if you've been, been a victim of cyber attack, that they will prosecute these foreign uh, agencies, countries, companies, and so on for free. And uh, being that it's a government-sponsored or state government-sponsored, and they've actually been quite successful. And uh, if any of our listeners have been a victim of cyber uh, attacks, I would highly recommend that you get a hold of uh, either one of these two gentlemen through NAGI, N-A-J-I, and uh, speak with them. And again, like I said, it is free, and uh, they've had... uh, I think the number was five million. Nine, nine wins so far. Nine wins, five million dollars. It doesn't sound like a lot of money, but it sure is a beginning. And uh, so we highly recommend that you listen to our show at M- uh, MT- <laughs> manufacturingtalkradio.com. Manufacture MTR Manufacturing Talk Radio. No, I got that backwards. MFG Talk Radio.com. And, um, Tim, back to you. Today we have Cliff Waldman on the show, who's Director of Economic Studies at the Manufacturers Alliance for Productivity and Innovation, the foundation there. Uh, He's going to talk to us about MAPI's latest economic forecast, plus some important research on productivity and manufacturing. Cliff, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Good to be with you as always. Well, we're glad to have you with us, and let's start out with the uh, economic forecast. Uh, When did that come out, and what's it saying about manufacturing in particular? We uh, we released our forecast in mid February. We do it uh, we do it quarterly, and it is not a pretty picture for manufacturing. We had to really take our 
manufacturing growth forecast for 2000 for calendar year 2016 way down. I think it's the largest we've ever revised it in the 10-year history of our forecasting program. We originally had 2.6% growth uh, of manufacturing uh, US manufacturing output for 2016. We had to unfortunately take that down to 1.1% with only a modest rebound in the out years of 17 and 18 to about 2.4-2.5%. So not a pretty picture and a big downward revision for 2016. Cliff, any clue in your research as to what's been holding manufacturing back in 2016? There are a, a number of things. First of all, we've had... First of all, the world economy is not a friend of the U.S. manufacturing sector right now. The U.S. economy, with all of its problems, has at least been seeing moderate growth, although it's getting strained lately, but it's at least been stable. The rest of the world is one problem on top of another. It's either instable, either have regions that are, have stability issues, or regions that are just very weak. And, you know, manuf U.S. manufacturing has become a, a, an increasingly globalized sector that sells into the rest of the world, so demand's been weak. Then you add to that the fact that um, central banks are trying to uh, keep their – central banks outside of the U.S. are trying to keep their economies out of deflation, a, 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 the scourge of falling prices, the precipice of, of deflation, which, as Japan, pushes you into long-term periods of economic weakness. And part of the way – part of what they've been doing is sort of targeting their currencies, hoping hopefully their currencies fall. Now, in a zero-sum world, that means that the relatively – the relatively strong economy being the U – and the world being the U.S., gets the recipient of all that capital coming in, and we have had a rising dollar, which has been a rising headache for U.S. manufacturers. That's the second thing. Third, while lower energy prices, falling energy prices, are generally an economic benefit and will eventually prove to be an economic benefit, certainly for consumers who have to fill up their gas tank, we have had an increasing investment in recent years years in the energy part of the manufacturing uh, sector. So with this rather – it's stabilizing lately, but with this rather dramatic fall that we have had in recent months in energy prices, uh, some would call it a route that has really hurt uh, investment in the energy part of the manufacturing sector, and therefore that's yet another thing. That is weighed on manufacturing. So you have weak global demand. You have a rising dollar, which is a competitiveness issue. Then you have a dramatic route downward in oil prices, and that has hurt the increasing part of the manufacturing sector that is energy-related. That, that's enough. That's conspired to create significant manufacturing weakness in the United States. Uh, okay. Well, that's certainly uh... – is a great summary of it. Now, I know that you look at 27 different industries when you're doing this uh, uh, analysis. Uh, let's just go into some of those uh, uh, key ones and see where we're at. And, you know, from our perspective, Manufacturing Talk Radio, because we're talking about manufacturing, we're interested in things like iron and steel products, and I, I see those as particularly weak. Is that correct from your findings? Well, I, I think iron and steel, anything that is commodity-oriented 
is going to uh, to be weak because commodity prices in a weak global economy are going to uh, just have downward pressure. What probably so I, I think iron and steel any anything that you know smacks of a commodity is really going to be hurting right now. What probably is going to be reasonably okay, what we think is going to be reasonably okay, is anything that is, is tied to uh, the, you know, domestic consumption uh, or you know, anything that the U.S. probably has had a long-term uh, competitive advantage in, like uh, high-tech capital equipment, will probably make it through you know the uh you know this difficult period of time so i i think you're going to have a really sort of um interesting divide in the manufacturing sector depend the, you know depending on what they do investment related manufacturing which is really uh, production where the which is really where the us has its 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 strength is going to be hurt by the fact that manufacturing sells to the rest of the manufacturing sector so for example Construction machinery um, in, two th- in 2016, we see that falling by 7%. Engines and turbines, we see falling by, uh, by 4%. You know, not, not a, a good deal for any um, part of manufacturing that sells to the rest of manufacturing. Iron and steel, now, iron and steel materials, we, we see it falling by 10%. Aluminum, we see falling uh, by 4%. So you know, not not a pretty picture for a lot of things that we uh, we often take for granted. Will you know, in normal periods, will be strong for manufacturing. Now, what is going to be up? What is going to be positive in in, in the manufacturing world? Motor vehicles and parts. We see six percent, uh, 2016 and 2017. One of the bright spots in the U.S. economy has been motor vehicle demand. We had an aging fleet. We had, uh, you know, credit opening up to the consumer after uh, the Great Recession. So we see 6% growth in motor vehicles and parts uh, for 2016 and 2017. Things like plastic products, uh, 2% growth, not not booming, but 2% growth this year in 2016, 4% growth um, in 2017. Food, steady. A ste- we have a steady, moderate uh, consumer spending picture, so we see steady, moderate growth in food output. Two percent this year, actually two percent this year, two percent 2017, two percent in 2018. So, materials hurting, capital spending because manufacturers that make capital but sell to other manufacturers hurting, commodities hurting, any the domestic consumption kinds of things. Not booming, but at least positive, and that, that's that's the you know the industry calculus of this weak manufacturing pick. Uh, Cliff, let's talk for a minute about uh, aerospace. Okay. I mean, I know Boeing. I know Boeing's got a ten-year backlog. So let's spin it on uh, on more of a positive side for a minute, or, minute or two. <laughs> well, uh, you know, aerospace has really been. Uh, for a long time, let's back up. Is long time one of the more competitive areas of uh, of the U.S. manufacturing, aerospace products and parts. We've had a trade surplus in it. Now, I we are thinking that it may have run its course, and uh, right now we're unfortunately for 2016 we see it flat, zero growth. 
there, with some pick up in the out year, 3% growth in 2017. 5% growth in 2018. You are right. That has been one of the brighter parts. We have a trade surplus in aerospace. Um, but I, I think, again, it is – you know, it, it, it's a very hard – um, part of manufacturing to talk about in terms of the economic cycle as I've been doing for these other areas because it has such long lead times, long lag times. It's all, it, it lives in its own you know, inventory supply chain cycle. So we think you know, the strength there may have exhausted itself a, a little bit. And again, we are predicting 0% growth flat in 2016, picking up slightly to 3% in 2017, 5% in 2018, but as things get better, as things start to you know, normalize moderately beyond this, this difficult period, you know, once again, aerospace will certainly take its place as one of the more stable and stronger parts of uh, the manufacturing world. Let me me ask you a question. I'm going to divert a little bit. We don't normally do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. So this is not a gotcha question. So if the the economy is looking as you have presented it, not particularly cheery, especially as a metals company as we are, um, the the politicians – the ones who are running for office and everybody says, oh, they're going to create jobs. They're going to create this. They're going to create that. We're going to stop with the export, the importing. What are they talking about? It's totally different than your forecast, which I have a lot more confidence in. Yeah, right. Well, let me suggest something. One thing that um, I don't comment on and Maypie doesn't comment on is you know elections in terms of specific candidates. However, that that being said, let let me let me suggest something. The next president, whoever that happens to be, is going to have to think differently about economics and economic policy than the presidents of say the past quarter century. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, first of all, as I hope I you know convince you and convince people, our economic life has become more globalized. It's you know the line between global economic policy and U.S. economic policy is getting blurrier and blurrier. The occasions when I I, I do a fair bit of, of live speaking of, of outside speaking, and when I am asked to do a U.S. outlook presentation, it almost always turns global, just because it, it I want to do the work correctly, and you have to think globally to really understand the U.S. So that, that's the first thing. I want the new president, who, again, whoever that is, to think globally because otherwise you're not going to help us here, here at home, here in the U.S. Second of all, the new president is going to have to realize that this – you know, the weakness that we are seeing – and again, the U.S. is rel- – is, you know, if, if the U.S. is weak, the rest of the world is in bigger trouble. The U.S. is relatively stronger than the rest of the world, but the weakness we are seeing – here and in the rest of the world, it's not just cyclical. In other words, it's not just one of those things that time will take care of and the cycle will pick up and we'll get into strength. There are structural issues, that part of which we can't do anything about. Demographics is constraining labor force growth. We knew that was coming, and that's going to be an issue. Part of which – the other part of which is that we are seeing and, – and this is, you know, gets a bit into my research – we, are, we have seen a, a, an odd and disturbing slowdown in productivity. Now, that we can do something about, 
but the but it you know it's a complex matter and it takes you know different kinds of investment. So again, I, the, whoever occup- walks into the Oval Office next January, U.S. policy and global policy are just melding together. And second of all, it's not just a cycle that passes that cycles it tend to it's structural problems. We're going to have to work to get um, a stronger economy. And that, that's what I'll say about uh, the election about politics. I, I think that's a great answer, and I hope they're all listening to it because it's a it's a most valid point, and uh, it, it's it's educational for them to start thinking in a more appropriate manner. Thanks for the answer. My pleasure. So, Cliff, let's talk about productivity growth in manufacturing. You've done quite a study on that recently. Just released a paper five days ago which we encourage all of our listeners to go to maypie.net to grab. Great reading. Start walking our listeners through that. What's happening there? Well, this was this is the first of three papers I'm going to be doing. I wrote a proposal last year because it, there's no question in my mind that productivity is is the uh, the subject of the day. We are worried – it, it, we are worried about our current economic weakness, but if we don't worry about this productivity weakness, we also have to worry about the future more and more. Um, one of our members, Rockwell Automation, um, gave us a generous grant to do the research, and we have to say thank you for that. Um, and this is the first of three papers that I will do. Now, clearly, productive, it's getting to be a bigger and bigger public policy issue. That productivity growth, which should have seen some kind of rebound, just some sort of cyclical rebound um, after the Great Recession is over, if anything, it's it, both in the U.S. economy as a whole and in manufacturing, it's slumped, and it's slumped for years now. That is disturbing. So I thought, well, I, I, I want to add some insight. I, I want to uh, you know, draw a picture that nobody has drawn before. Very often, new research in economics economics either comes from new data or from a data set that has expanded enough that it becomes useful to draw the picture. The Bureau of Labor Statistics has a wonderful data set, and I've been keeping my eye on it, for, frankly, for years now. I've been wanting to do something for, for years now, uh, of productivity performance, of a productivity series on Detailed manufacturing industries. You cannot just you you can't you don't have to even just look at broad manufacturing anymore. That's just that you can look at productivity performance and a detailed industry level. I thought, wow, what a wonderful um, data set for research. So that that became the the basis of my first paper. I said, okay, what am I going to do with this? Well, let's let's do something simple. Let's start by doing something simple. Let's take the broad, you know, the basic three-digit. There there are 21 major divisions, major you know, sectoral divisions in in manufacturing. Let's let's do something simple and let's rank them. Let's let's take several productivity metrics, uh, multi-factor productivity, which is the productivity of combined inputs that businesses use, and labor productivity, which is output per hour of all persons. And let's not not only rank them, but let's rank them through time and see what happens. What kind of result do I get? I found was um, is that. Number one throughout the 90s and throughout the 2000s, so uh, up to 2013, 2014, the number one, the most productive sector in U.S. manufacturing has been computers. 
I mean, you you remember the hey, they, the go go days of the 1990s. A lot of that was because that uh, you know computer innovation was not done just red hot; it was white hot. And could therefore, computer sector productivity was reaching unprecedented levels, 21% you know, productivity growth. We've never seen that before. But, of course, you know, innovation reaches physical limits. And now it's slowing, slowing, slowing. It was going to happen sooner or later. The problem is, is that the rest of the manufacturing sector, while we see some promise in a few other industry sectors, machinery and transportation, we don't see anything to replace the thrust from computer sector productivity. So I, I, I might say that because it, it, you know, in the because we had those heydays of the 1990s where computer sector productivity was crazy levels, 21, 22 percent. You can say that manufacturing productivity was in a bubble, and frankly, the bubble is bursting now. Like after, like as is the case after every bubble bursts. Um, the future becomes highly, highly uncertain. And, okay, we see that transportation and machinery are um, possibles for, you know, uh, for replacing the thrust from computers, but not really very strongly at the moment. So I said, okay, what's happening with the drivers of manufacturing productivity? What, what, what do we have to do to get this better over time. So therefore, I said, all right, let's, let's do some statistical analysis. And I know viewers and listeners don't always understand what that means. But I said, let's see what it is that's real, really driving, from a policy point of view, um, multi-factor productivity and labor productivity growth. And I found that there are three things that we have to worry about to get the, the, the murky manufacturing productivity um, picture less gloomy, to get it looking bright. We have to worry about capital investment. We have to worry about innovation investment. And we have to worry about the supply of educated labor, which has been falling dramatically. The labor force participation rate of workers with a BA degree and higher has been falling precipitously from, since the, 1990, the early 1990s. That's one of the reasons that manufacturing productivity and that total productivity in the economy has been, um, has been falling so much. So the statistical analysis after I did the ranking suggested that's the package we need, better capital investment, better innovation investment, and doing something about the supply of educated labor in the economy. But then, then I did one more thing. Let me, uh, I'll, I'll conclude my uh, summary with one thing. I surmised, or at least hypothesized, that these sectors have in interesting relationships with each other. If you know the manufacturing world, it's a big labyrinth. It's tied together by supply chains, by innovation spillovers, by clusters, by trade channels. And I thought, well, you know, productivity determination in one sector is not necessarily completely independent of productivity determination of another sector. So I did some statistical analysis there, correlations and regressions. And again, I know viewer, listeners don't always understand it, but these are the ways you test for these things. And I found, gee, a lot of evidence of interrelationships of productivity determination among the sectors. Now, what does that mean from a practical policy point of view? Well, if you, if you properly invest with capital investment, with innovation investment, with a better labor supply, educated labor supply, in, and have, make a difference 
in the productivity path of one industry, it can spill over into three or four other industries. Such is the nature of manufacturing, and such is the nature of the evidence that I provided. So, again, it was, it, it was, the paper was motivated by concern about slowing manufacturing productivity growth. That's something that we don't want to see for competitiveness purposes, for survival purposes, really. We ranked the, uh, the industries. We looked at them. We saw the computer is coming off of its, its, its bubble, but nothing really to replace it. We saw the capital investment, innovation investment, the supply of educated labor are the drivers that we have to worry about from a policy perspective to, to get a better productivity future beyond this point when computers is no longer doing it for us anymore. And we see statistically that there is a strong evidence of a strong interconnection between industries. So if you invest in one industry that is strongly interconnected, you'll probably help other industries. And that's the paper. Wow, that's quite a quite a summary, and this is an exciting paper to go through. Cliff, let's talk about capital investment for the moment. What do you see happening in capital investment? I guess the conversations we've had are that manufacturers are investing in technology, short ROI investments, and not long-term uh, buildings and equipment investments. Is that consistent? That, with that is see? true, yes. Well, for one thing, uh, again, they're, they're, they're wor- living in a weak world. So you know, any spending is going to be constrained. They're not going to take risks in this world. I mean, our, getting back to our forecast, you know, in a 1.1% growth world that, uh, that hopefully if we're right, we'll get to be 2.4% in 2017, they're not going to be risk takers. They're, going to, they're just going to sort of uh, you know, try to ride through the muddle here. But really, capital investment, let's, let's, let's give it the, the right word, equipment investment, has been weak in the United States economy since 2000. 2000, for more than 15 years now, and really weak since the end of the Great Recession in the, in the middle of 2009. And it's been the subject of a lot of study uh, by economists, and you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. We think that things, you know, there, there might be some suggestion that they are, you know, uh, instead of putting in capital equipment, they're putting in automation equipment, that they, they have to liquefy their pensions as, as the workforce gets older. There's a whole, you know, these, these things never have one explanation. But for a whole host of reasons, capital equipment investment in the United States economy since 2000 has been running well below its, um, its long-run rate. It's one thing that's holding the U.S. economy as a whole back from getting back to any sort of normal growth um, level. So, you know, and, and now we know, and, and I'm, I'm providing further evidence that it's one of the policy packages that we better do something about or this slump in productivity, which means a slump in competitiveness, a slump in output, is, is just going to keep slumping. Cliff, do you feel as though that uh, t- uh, tax uh, restructuring in the corporate world would help in the um, uh, capital investment or equipment investment? What we, if you look at, look at what's going on, take a few steps back from there. We want to, we've seen. I've been talking about a lack of risk of a risk taking mentality. We've seen weakness in capital investment, but although it's changed, although it's getting a little better lately, for a while we were really seeing weakness in entrepreneurship. And those two things together suggest that this economy has become risk-averse. The difference often between 2% growth and 4% growth is the, the, um, the willingness of smart entrepreneurs or smart business executives 
to take risks. Now, I, you know, there's a lot of debate about what, what sort of um, tax is needed, and I don't want to come out from one plan, but I do think that a tax system that really encourages risk-taking – well, you know, the tax system has the legitimate need of raising, you know, the, the uh, what we need for our government, uh, government. But a, a tax system that is becoming that would be more friendly, more more incentivizing, particularly for small businesses, which create a lot of jobs, capital equipment investment, risk taking, that sort of thing, to get to get, you know, the, the, that that risk taking juice again and get us out of this two percent growth. In, in the U.S. economy and uh, as a whole, and, and get it to three or four percent growth, I, I, I do think we need to look at a saner, simpler, uh, more more pro-growth tax plan. Yes, I think at this point it, it, it is time to really do that and really do it hard because uh, you know if we keep slumping along like this for years, it, it's going to have generational costs. You know, the millennials are, are trying to, to make it in the world, and uh, many of them so far in their careers have only known economic uncertainty and weaknesses, have only been, you know, um, living under this cloud that we, you know, we keep talking about. That's not good. By, you know, the 2020, they're going to become 75% of the global workforce, and I don't want them maturing in their careers with a risk-averse mentality because that's really bad for the future. So, yeah. Yes, if it, if it takes tax cuts and a, and a rationalization of a of a, a very poorly constructed uh, tax system, then absolutely that's what we have to do. Well, we really can't discuss that unless we talk politics, so we're not going to talk about that anymore. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Cliff, I want to uh, uh, go to a commercial break now rather than get you started on another topic here because okay. uh, when we come back, I want to talk about innovation investment and what that means and get into that a bit. So why don't we take a quick commercial break now. We'll be back in just a few moments with uh, Tim Grady and Lou Weiss and Manufacturing Talk Radio with Cliff Waldman. Manufacturing Talk Radio will be right back. American Crane and Equipment Corporation in Douglasville, Pennsylvania, is a leader in specialized cranes, hoists, and material handling equipment for industries including aerospace, nuclear, oil and gas, transit, construction, and waste handling. Call 877-877-6778 or visit AmericanCrane.com. That's AmericanCrane.com or 877-877-6778. All Metals and Forge Group is an ISO 9001 AS and EN 9100 manufacturer of open die forgings and seamless rolled rings in alloy, carbon, stainless and tool steels, aluminum, copper, titanium, and nickel alloys. Visit us at steelforge.com or call 800-600-9290. How do you keep your business humming? Where do you go when you're looking for quality suppliers of new equipment, components, MRO supplies, repair services, or even raw materials? 30 years ago, you would have turned to the Thomas Register. Today, those big green books are better than ever at thomasnet.com, industry's leading platform for product sourcing and supplier discovery. You can easily find that local machine shop, national distributor, OEM, or any supplier having the right quality certification. Fast and free. You can even get to specific products, components, or downloadable 3D CAD drawings. 
simply by entering specifications or part numbers. There's a reason ThomasNet.com has become the go-to supplier discovery tool for procurement professionals and engineers. There's simply no other resource like it, and it's all free. Go to ThomasNet.com today and see how top-notch supplier discovery doesn't have to put a dent into your bottom line. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. In this segment, we're talking with Cliff Waldman. We're talking about uh, productivity in manufacturing. I'm here with my co-host, Lou Weiss, and uh, we wanted to get into a discussion with you, Cliff, about innovation investment, really kind of define that for our listening audience and then get into it a bit and what's happening in manufacturing. So if you would, please uh, define innovation investment for our listeners. Well, there's two kinds. There's product innovation and there's process innovation. The latter is, is very interesting these days. Innovation generally means um, either uh, new products, new processes, or uh, significant improvements in existing products or ex- significant improvements in existing processes. It's anything that uh, – it's, it's change. It's change in a product. It's change in a process. It's a new product. It's a new process. So it's a, it's a broadly defined metric. We usually – uh, it, particularly for products, especially for products, we usually proxy it. Although it, it can be hard to measure. Uh, I, I did some study and published a paper on it with a colleague in 2007 on um, manufacturing innovation. It can be hard to measure. We, we came up with some proxy measures, but the one, the one accepted um, metric that tends to track innovation, even though it's not a perfect measure of it, is patents. You know, we looked at patents, and there's, there's wonderful data on um, on patents in uh, the manufacturing sector by um, manufacturing industry. Now, one thing I, I, I want to, uh, you know, in in researching um, innovation, you know, in, in years past, in 2007, we found some of the things that I've talked about. We found that capital investment matters, but. One thing I haven't talked about, what's very important in the manufacturing sector, there's a lot of evidence that manufacturers use patents that come out of universities, academic um, science as prior art. So it is very, very important for manufacturing innovation, for the future of the manufacturing sector, to create an incentive for um, not only incentive not only for scientists and our universities to keep innovating. To have, to have whatever incentives, uh, materials and incentives they need to keep innovating, but to, to really form productive partnerships with the industrial sector. One of the keys to, key to successful innovation uh, in manufacturing is a productive partnership between the academic world and, um, and industry, which we know uses it as, uh, as prior art. Okay. And what do you forecast happening? I know you talked about uh, uh, the disruption in manufacturing. Really, what's happening? You know, technology swings into manufacturing. What you are know, we it, looking it, it's at? It's interesting. It, it, it's an interesting time, and I, I say that this in the introduction to the uh, paper. I've, I've talked about the negative. I've talked about you know weak manufacturing growth in a weak world. I've talked about slowing manufacturing productivity. But we are also at a time of tremendous technological uh, innovation for process, for uh, for processes. I mean, we've never seen it, – it's been a long time since we've seen the cornucopia of new technologies that are starting to encircle the manufacturing sector. And you hear about them every day, 3D printing, robotics, 
um, smart manufacturing, sensors, that kind of thing, a, a major um, a basket of new technologies that has become available to make manufacturing uh, smarter, to shorten supply chains, to lower costs, to get the consumer more involved in, in the end product um, uh, design and, and end product distribution. So the question is, okay, we have that, but it's not innovation until it's used. Just because it's sitting there doesn't mean that it's it, so they how, – how can we – how manufacturers are trying to figure out, okay, how do I take all these new technologies and inculcate it into my production process? And then we have to figure out what's going to, to motivate them to do so because you know, history has shown there's always an inertia. I mean, you know, it, it took a very long time from the invention of electricity to the time that um, factories became electrified in, in the 1920s, which is one of the reasons for the booms of, of the 1920s. There's always – because, you know, you, you have to change the way it, – it, it's a big investment. It's not just putting new equipment on the floor. You have to change the way you do things. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's an exciting time, for, uh, and these are very interesting. And, yes, you are quite correct, very disruptive technologies, but it's not innovation. It's not – economically meaningful until they figure out how to optimize it for their own businesses, their own production processes, and until we figure out what the best public policy is um, to get them to use it in a way that becomes a part of that productivity improvement package that I talked about um, a few minutes ago. So let's talk about the third leg of this stool, which is labor. And you right. did a study on the number of people coming out of uh, colleges with uh, Bachelor of Arts degrees or Bachelor of Science degrees. And you mentioned in a kind of a pre-show conversation we were having that that's been in a precipitous fall since the 1990s. Well, uh, is that well, right? It, it, the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics has these data. I mean, the, the labor force participation rate, well, let's, let's define it first of all, the overall labor force participation rate. This is the percent of the working age population of the 16 and over population that is either working or looking for work. And you have to be looking for work to be considered unemployed, either work, working or looking for work. Those data go back to the late 1940s, I believe 1948. Since the late 50s, early 60s, for the United States, that has been going straight up. Around 2000, it made a precipitous turn and went down. Now, part of that is, is the, the beginning of the retirement wave for the baby boomers. But, so, but even if you look at the labor force participation rate for the 25 to 54 to take out the retirement factor, it too – in fact, it peaked earlier in the late 1990s, and it has been falling. The Bureau of Labor Statistics has, is constantly trying to add um, depth and sophistication to its data set. So in the early 1990s, it said, okay, how about the labor force participation rate of various educational attainment cohorts? And one of them is those with a BA degree and higher. That, that's, what, that's what I was talking about. That's, it, it's in the paper. That's what, I, what I'm showing is the labor force participation rate of those workers with a bachelor's degree and higher. That you know, that's the percent of those of the bachelor's degree and higher work who are participating in the labor force, either by working or going out and looking for work. Now we only have the data back to the 1990s, but it's been it, it's just been falling. 
um, ever since. I, I think the problem is that we are retiring educated labor faster than we are bringing educated labor um, into the workforce, to put it uh, simply. Uh, that's no good. We can't do that. And it particularly as manufacturing moves forward and hopefully moves forward with inculcating these interesting and sophisticated new technologies into the process to fundamentally change the factory, we are going to need educated labor because by itself, automation or technological investment without the, you know, the the uh, more skilled, more highly educated labor is not going to do anything for productivity. It, you know, it's, it, it's a cake with the eggs but without the flour, and that, that's the problem. And we're going to have to really do something about the supply of labor <coughs> excuse me, that is going into um, the economy and that is, is, frankly, knocking on the door of manufacturers looking for work. Well, that was the question I was going to ask because we talk a lot about people graduating from high school and they may not be uh, people who would go on to college. Uh, they either don't have right. the interest or the skill set. But what manufacturing seems to need and be looking for are people with a college degree. Well, the college, right? remember, the educational attainment is important. But it's only a partial indicator of education. I know, which which is an odd thing to say. We, you know, we need people of, of varying uh, skill levels. We we need the artisan and we need the scientist. We need people who uh, who can think cognitively, who can think analytically um, in this new environment that manufacturing is getting. Who can think competitively because obviously the world is, is getting uh, more competitive. So. Yeah, BA degree and higher, you know, in economic analysis, we, we get the best proxy, the best empirical, the best data proxy we can to represent often very difficult concepts like this. BA degree and higher is as good as anything. The, the results show that, you know, uh, a fall in, in really, you know, the uh, – the skilled, educated labor that we need, and that it that it matters a great deal to the ultimate productive outcome of uh, for almost for all sectors, and I tested it for you know a, a number of a diverse number of sectors. Um, yeah, BA and higher, but it, uh, even if it's, if you have a, a somebody with high school who went on to like a trade school and is particularly good in the skill, that that would be that would be good. So uh, it's a rough proxy, but the point is the 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 qualitative point is we need people who are skilled, who have have a variety of different skills, and who can think in a cognitive manner. Now, I know that uh, my co-host has to step out here. He's got uh, another commitment. Uh, Lou, anything you want to uh, share or say before you have to uh, mosey on? I'd like to say that, uh, Cliff, this was one of the most intelligent, bright, and intuitive uh, conversations we've had in regards to uh, economic uh, forecast and the view of the future. Uh, a little concerning, I might add. But uh, nonetheless, uh, I hope that our uh, listeners and audience uh, can appreciate uh, the amount of input that uh, you and Maypie have put into uh, this uh, uh, report that you put out. So I wish to thank you for that. I thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Cliff, as you, now you've got uh, three papers you're going to put out. This is the first yes. of three. In Correct. this first one, any big surprises? 
Uh, any big surprises? I, I would say that one of the biggest surprises is how how ultra dependent. You know, in in the past twenty years, we've been t- saying that manufacturing productivity is strong relative to the productivity of the broad U.S. economy, and that's true. Numerically, that is absolutely true. It's always been a productivity leader. But I was surprised, and I say this made how much that strength depended on the the outsized strength and the, the the unsustainable strength of one sector, computers, because computer uh, innovation, the, the, the innovation that was happening in computers in the 80s and the 90s is like the world's never seen before. All right, so uh, you know how that's the big surprise. How much that strong manufacturing productivity that we boasted about really depended so much on one sector, and now it's deflating as it inevitably was going to. I see some possibilities from a few other things, machinery, and I think partially because it was a very innovative. It 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 had a lot of patents. It's kind of do- it it's been one of the areas that's dominated the patent world in manufacturing. Transportation, maybe, but there's, there's just it, numerically not enough thrust by any means to replace the deflation of productivity in the computer sector. So it, it was the I, I would say it was the biggest surprise for me the ultra dependence of manufacturing on on one sector, and we have to we have to look at square in the face right now what drove it in previous years i know that manufacturing typically leaves the leads the united states out of any particular recession because right. they have to look no, six well, or nine months down the road yeah in, in historically if you go back 20 30 years recessions have normally started and ended in the manufacturing sector the problem is those old relations, those old business cycle relationships are changing in ways that we have to keep studying just because manufacturing is becoming increasingly globalized. So now the cycle of manufacturing is not just tied to the domestic U.S. economy. It's, it's you know, I looked at a, a number of indicators of globalization. You know, the, the exports as a share of value added, uh, imports as a share of value added, and they're going up in manufacturing. It's becoming increasingly a globalized sector. So those old relationships getting harder to getting harder to hang on to. We have to we have to study the cycles of manufacturing more because they're just necessarily getting more complicated. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's, that's certainly an important point. It is a shift, uh, and in manufacturing as a whole, um, you know, we talk about manufacturing and we hear various numbers about its size of GDP, and we hear eleven, twelve percent, and we hear. Right. What what kind of numbers are you coming up with at May? Twelve point five. It's twelve point five percent of uh, value added in manufacturing is about twelve point five percent of GDP. Now, let me tell you. That being said, I, the one thing I was cautious. So it's twelve point five is the right answer. But the one thing I always caution people about is that um, percentages can be very deceptive in economics. Mm-hmm. Um, before the uh, before the Great Recession, housing, residential investment, housing, in effect, was you know four five percent of GDP. Yet the housing collapse almost took the world down with it. So you know, in terms of absolute percentages, because you know you have a system where um, uh, you know um, one sector bleeds over into the other. So again, that's the answer, but don't it, it, it has much more of an impact than twelve point five percent. Okay, and that I think is probably accurate. Uh now the other thing I've been picking up on in the news, I don't know if you picked it up in your research, is the automobile sector, which has been going so strong now for several right. years, 
uh, there's some concern that there's a bubble there with the packaging, repackaging of automobile loans like they did the housing. I, I've noticed that too, yes. It has gotten in the news. I have not looked at the data or studied it. Um, I, I think it bears careful attention because, frankly, as uh, one, of, one of the down, you know, listen, we are blessed to live in one of the world's strongest. Um, even even at this time of, of many many challenges, one of the world's strongest um, economies, but strong industrialized economies are prone to bubbles, and we you know we've seen the damage that bubbles can do. So uh, while I have not looked, I, I saw the story. I have not looked at data. I have not studied it. Another complex issue because you know the, of the shifting demographics of auto demand, the shifting demographics of consumer uh, credit demand. I, I I would suggest that somebody look at that very very carefully, just given the propensity of large, um, strong industrialized economies to blow da- bubbles that eventually do damage. Clearly, uh, let's wrap this up with one more area that kind of surprises me, Cliff. And because uh, the baby boomers are retiring out, um, I would not expect to see housing starts going and projected to go as strong as they are. What's driving it? Well, it, it, you have to be careful. Remember, we it was so beaten up that sooner, you know, it, when a market gets markets, especially when they panic, and that that was a panic in in two thousand eight and two thousand nine, they um, always end up overshooting. And now, for a while, housing starts were not keeping up with demand. There were too few houses, and then then they catch up and they over they overstated. So. It's, I, I wouldn't take the short-term data that all that seriously as being indicative of the long-term strength. What you have is, is you have a market that collapsed um, in 2008, 2009, and now is just trying to recalibrate itself. For a while, supply is going to out. Uh, for a while, demand outran supply. Now, supply is going to outrun demand, and the two of them are trying to. You know, market activity is a process of trying to find an equilibration, and that that's what you're seeing now. Okay, Cliff, uh, I appreciate the time you've taken with us. You have two more segments of this paper coming out. When do you expect yes. those to to hit? Well, the second paper we are hoping will come out in mid 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 to late April is when we release it. That one is going to reveal the results of a national survey that I conducted, um, a national survey with a good amount of responses of U.S. manufacturers on their automation investment behavior. With all the talk about automation these days and automation investment and what automation may or may not do for productivity, there's very little data on it. I mean, who's automating? Who's not automating? What, what, uh, so I, I designed the survey to find out what is, what is the incidence, how, how much automation is out there, what's motivating it, how is, how is automation capital implemented into the production process? Is it slow? Is it fast? How do manufacturers evaluate their automation investment? So that second paper is going to reveal the results and my analysis of the results of that national survey. The third paper is going to be a conceptual one, and here's the problem. In this era of new technology, where we're constantly talking about, again, new technologies, this is really for the business person. Okay, you know, generally the way investment is, is evaluated is ROI, return on investment framework. But it's, it's occurred to me, and I, I think I'm starting to see that it's occurred to a number of people, that the ROI framework really doesn't apply that well to new technologies. 
Because if you use ROI to evaluate any brand new technologies, you're almost always going to reject them. Because initially, it's always a huge cost. You have you have stranded costs from your, your you know electricity in the 1920s changed, forced a change in the way that factories do things. 3D printers and robotics are going to do the same thing, and it's going to even be more dramatic with changing the factory itself, and it's going to force businesses to change the way they do things. It's a big cost. You can have to leave things behind. You can have stranded costs. So if you know, but nonetheless, they have to evaluate it somehow, right? So if yes. our, is our, that, that third paper will say, is ROI the right framework when you're talking about not just regular old investment that businesses do every day, but new, brand new technology investment? And if it's not, what is the right framework? So that's going to be the third paper. Well, we're certainly looking forward to those two papers. And of course, you know where I'm going with this. We want to have you back on the show to talk about that second paper. <laughs> I would very much look forward to it. Thank you. Thank you, Cliff, for joining us. This has uh, been an interesting conversation with Cliff Waldman, who's Director of Economic Studies at the Manufacturers Alliance for Productivity and Innovation Foundation. Cliff, thanks for your time on the show today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You bet. We'll have Cliff back in the near future when he talks about that uh, second paper that he's doing. I want to talk to you folks about the show next week. We're going to be talking with the resh- uh, about reshoring again, another important topic. We're going to be speaking with Rosemary Coates, the executive director of the Reshoring Institute, and we're going to be speaking on what's happening in reshoring and how that's impacting this uh, uh, generation of manufacturers. So stay tuned uh, for next week's show. Tune back in. Be sure to go to maypie.net to get any of the research papers you've heard about on this show, and we look forward to having you back next week on Manufacturing Talk Radio. That's a wrap for today. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.